1: This
2: episode is brought to you by Shady Brook Farms. If you're looking for ways to make mealtime healthier in the new year, make your favorite recipes with turkey from Shady Brook Farms. Take the pressure off, keep it simple and tasty without sacrificing flavor for nutrition. Whether you want a delicious sandwich or a post workout protein, Shady Brook Farms turkey can do it all. Visit shadybrookfarms.com for a recipe inspiration and to find retailers near you. Shady Brook Farms. Eat what you love.
1: Every day my
3: employees get scam emails. I wanted to protect my business and clients, so I checked out CISA's
4: Secure Our World. They've got four simple ways we can protect our businesses from online threats. Learn more at cisa.gov forward slash secure our world.
2: Hello
0: there. It's my pleasure to welcome you to a little piece of audio bliss. It's the BRFCS podcast.
3: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the BRFCS podcast. We're going to take a close look at the career of a man who joined Rovers in 1970, was a player, was a caretaker manager on six separate occasions and was an excellent coach. right, we're celebrating the career of Tony Parks. Here's Bill Arthur with some reminiscences of Rovers in the 1970s.
2: The 70s were difficult for Rovers. Low crowds, not much money and two relegations to Division 3 but there were thrills along the way with promotions from Division Three in 1975 and 1980. During those up and down years there were a few players who were consistently valuable to the club and Tony Parks was one of them. If you look up the bios of Tony in books, you'll see him described as a grafter, a willing, hard-working midfielder. I don't actually remember much about him when he first broke into the first team in seventy seventy one a season which ended in relegation from the second division. He just seemed to me at the time to be another run-of-the-mill midfielder in a not very good team. But by seventy-four, seventy-five, when Rovers were promoted, he was a first-team regular and a player I was always pleased to see on the team sheet because I knew that he would give his all for the team. He was good in the tackle and not only was he excellent defensively, But he was always willing to try and get forward and support the attack, regularly weighing in with five, six or seven goals a season from midfield. If assists had been counted in those days I'm sure he would have had more than his fair share of them. Tony and Stuart Metcalf were the heart of that team in midfield. Whilst other players would flicker in and out of the game and incur the ire of the crowd, such as it was, I don't ever remember Tony getting stick even when he wasn't at his best. That's maybe a backhanded compliment, but it's a compliment to the man all the same. He was respected by the fans, teammates and his managers. You don't get to be a regular first team player under managers such as Furphy, Lee, Smith and Kendall unless you're worth your weight in gold to the team.
4: Never the wind. our way Our name is ranked amongst the all-time greats We'll never say die, we're here to try and then to celebrate For we are the Rovers We're proud of our colors On and on We'll carry to victory For the Rovers will be scoring For the Rovers They'll be roaring We'll never give in By gum we'll make it our day For the Rovers We'll be scoring For the Rovers They'll be roaring We'll never give in by God, we'll make it our day
3: In modern football, the term legend is used rather like punctuation. These days, a player need only post a video on his Instagram account, or dare I say it, indulge in hashtag bants with one of his teammates, to be declared an official club legend. But in this episode of the podcast, we're going to deal with a real legend. Born on the 5th of May 1949, Tony started his footballing career at Buxton Town, signing for Rovers on the 21st of May 1970. He would remain a player until injury ended his career on the 27th of March 1982. Overall, Tony made 392 appearances, scoring 45 goals. He was a loyal one-club man, giving over a quarter of a century of service to Blackburn Rovers. Intriguingly, when he joined Rovers, it was as a centre-forward. But Ken Furphy, Rovers' manager in the early 70s, recognised something in Parks and converted him into a central midfielder, a role that he would fulfil admirably throughout the rest of his playing career. Tony made significant contributions to two promotion campaigns, under Gordon Lee in 1974-5 from the 3rd Division back up to the 2nd, and similarly under Howard Kendall in 1979-80. I think it's fair to say that if you were to quiz any non-Rover supporters about Tony Parks, then the term that would most often spring to mind in the conversation would be caretaker-manager. Here's Bill Arthur talking us through the transition in Tony's career from player to caretaker-manager.
2: After a broken leg ended his career, Bobby Saxton made Tony the first team coach in 1981 and when Saxton was sacked in December '86, Tony had his first spell as caretaker-manager a six-game spell in which he went undefeated before Don Mackay came in.
3: This is what Simon Garner wrote in his autobiography about the situation. Tony Parks took control after Bobby left, which was a tough assignment. The players had been right behind Bobby, and it didn't matter who took over because there was always going to be something of an atmosphere as the new man, even in a caretaker role, would have to make changes to stop what was becoming a serious downward spiral. What Tony had in his favour was that the players had a great deal of respect for him. There was always an air about him that marked him out for a managerial or coaching position. And just like when he was a player, he always put all of his energies into the job. He got off to a reasonable start, and I think that there were two things at play here. Firstly, we let ourselves and Bobby down, and we knew that we had to reverse what was a critical situation – And secondly, a new full-time manager would be in place soon and we'd have to impress on him that we were up for the fight or we might be on our way out.
2: When Tony was first appointed caretaker manager after the sacking of Bobby Saxton in 1986, I never envisaged that we'd have six different spells as caretaker manager. But whenever a manager was sacked, I always knew Rovers would be in safe hands. But I guess it must have been irritating for Tony that he was never seriously considered as a manager. You can never know about these things, but I'm not sure whether Tony would have been successful as a permanent manager. He was obviously a good coach, but I wonder if he was from the same mould as Ray Harford in that respect. One thing for sure is that his record as caretaker manager only enhanced the fans' view of him as a Rovers legend. I wonder whether his legacy would have been tarnished if he had become manager and failed and sacked. Who knows?
3: One thing seems quite certain. He quite fancied taking on the job. Here's the audio from an item on Granada Reports back in the day.
0: A number of national newspapers say the former Liverpool boss has agreed to join the Ewood Park Club, now backed by the millionaire Jack Walker. But this latest publicity does nothing for the confidence of the man currently in temporary charge of the team. Tony Parks was hard at work this morning. The last five weeks of his 21 years at Blackburn Rovers have seen him in charge of the team he once played for. His latest spell has seen Rovers gain a creditable 14 points from seven games. Yet that record seems to count for little. Today's headlines proclaim the imminent arrival at Ewood of Kenny Gleish. And more worrying for Parks, the prediction that former Wimbledon manager Ray Hartford will be second in command. The wealth of the club's majority shareholder, Jack Walker, would pave the way for Dalgleish's return to football. It's eight months since he left Liverpool because of the pressure at Anfield. Last month, Rovers sacked their manager, Don Mackay, as his expensive signings failed to make an early impression. Now, Parks also feels his future is under threat. I'm just hoping that somebody from the club, uh, such as the chairman, may telephone me today or come to see me and tell me just what is happening. I always thought that there was something happening in the background. Uh, nobody said anything at the club. But the longer it's gone, I don't think it's done me any favours. I think if they were going to make me manager, they would have done it earlier.
5: I don't think it's been fair to Tony Parks. I think he's done a good job. Uh, And he's the position he's in, he's uh, he's walking up a blind alley
2: at the moment.
0: Rovers' official silence only fuels the rumours. Tony Parks carried on preparing for tonight's reserve game at Manchester United. He's well aware that by Saturday's home game with Plymouth, his long Ewood career could be over. Things have changed at the club. The club has got a lot of money now. I just want somebody to confirm to me that my future's still secure at Blackburn Rovers.
3: This is what Simon Garner had to say about the situation, taken from his autobiography. Tony Parks was again employed to steady the ship, in preparation for the new boss. This time I felt it was trickier, working under Tony, because he wasn't picking me. That might sound odd, but because I had so much respect for him, and he was a pal... I didn't feel it was appropriate me going into his office, demanding to play, even though I was performing well in the reserves and in training. It was a tough enough assignment for him, and it didn't help that the fans were chanting my name while I was on the bench. That really put him in a quandary. If he was to bring me on, was it simply for me to snatch a goal, or was it to get the fans off the players' backs? I kept a low profile and did what I could to help the team, my patience paid off because I came back in late September without anyone losing face. I got my first goal of the season and it felt like a hell of a weight away at Millwall early in October. The abuse we received for winning 3-1 at the Den was horrendous but after going four games without a win I'd have been happy taking three points off the Lions at the Coliseum. It was a good time to start finding the net because by the following Saturday Kenny Dalgleish had arrived, and I had no inkling Kenny was coming at all, though there was some speculation in the press. Peter White of the Lancashire Evening Telegraph stuck his neck out on Kenny being tempted in, and that really should have given the game away. Peter tended to be cautious and avoided speculation, but the players didn't have a clue, and we weren't told until a couple of days before we played Plymouth in mid-October, and we didn't actually meet him until the day of the game. Tony picked the team... I think that's the way Kenny wanted to do it. And besides, under Tony, we'd lifted ourselves from the bottom of the table to a more stable 15th position. I also guessed, wrongly as it turns out, that Kenny didn't really know that much about the players. He came into the dressing room with Ray Harford an hour before kick-off and introduced himself. We all shook hands. It was a brilliant moment, an unforgettable experience. Here he was, one of my heroes – The player I'd tried to model my game on, and now we were going to be on the same side. I was like a school kid, totally gobsmacked.
2: I was so pleased that Dalgleish retained his services, and who will forget that glorious day in May 1992 when Tony led out the team in the playoff final. A fine gesture from Kenny, and a mark of the respect which he obviously had for Tony.
5: Now, Kenny Dalgleish has already sprung quite a surprise, Don, in his own inimitable fashion by letting Tony Parks, Blackland's long-serving manager, player, coach, uh, you name it, he's done it at Ewood Park, he allowed Tony to to lead the team out this afternoon, which was a nice touch, don't you think? Yeah, a tremendous touch. Tony's been there a long time, a very loyal servant to Blackland Overs, and it's a big day. Let's hope it goes the right way now, that's the main thing, really. I wonder how much of it was Kenny maybe feeling that too much attention would be focused on him and he wanted to put the attention on the team. It's their day. Yeah, it could well be that. Uh, it could well be, of course, knowing Kenny. He didn't want to wear a suit. That's Tony. Yeah, Tony <laughs> it.
3: Here's an extract from Kenny Doglish's autobiography.
2: Going to Wembley in May was a familiar trip, although this had a different feeling. It was my first and last playoff. Before we left the hotel for Wembley, I told our new chairman, Robert Corr, who had followed Bill, that I was going to let Tony Parks lead Blackburn out against Leicester City. Tony had been at Rovers for 25 years. Instead of giving him a gold watch, it would be better to let him take the team out. Tony never knew. We were all in the dressing room. I let Tony put his training gear on and then said, ''Come on, Tony, get a suit on.'' What, he said? ''You take them out.'' ''Thanks,'' Tony replied. He didn't need to say any more. I knew how much it meant to him. It was a small gesture of thanks for everything he had done for Blackburn during my brief time and for years before that. To take a team out at Wembley was nothing new to me. Ray had done it before as well. I appreciated what an honour it was and there was none more deserving of it than Tony Parks. What a pity that Mark Hughes did not have the same respect and what a pity that the club handled his leaving in a shabby way. But that does not diminish the respect that all Rovers fans have for him, either as player or caretaker manager. To use the current phrase, he's one of our own. For the
4: Rovers, we'll be scoring For the Rovers, they'll be roaring We'll never give in By gone, we'll make it our day For the Rovers, we'll be scoring Father Rovers, they'll be roaring. We'll never give in. By come, we'll make it our day.
0: Hello there. You're listening to the BRFCS Podcast, and this bit is simply a mechanism to assist the editing together of two different parts. Sorry to let daylight in upon magic, but there it is.
3: For financial reasons, BRFCS Podcast needs a transition into a sponsorship message, this, it's that transition.
5: Oh well, wouldn't you know it? Once again, bumped into Tony Mowbray here at, here at Brockhall. Tony, how would you take your brew, mate? Well, basic really. Uh, tea, quite strong. Uh, two sugars, and uh, and I always drink out of my favourite mug. Oh, which uh, w- w- which one is it? Oh yeah, it's good. Isn't it? I got it from the Middlesbrough store, um, and uh, yeah, it's. Uh, Oh no no no, Tony! Not the middle of the, the Rovers one. Oh, this one, right? Yeah, you can get them personalised at um, at the terrace store. Uh, of course, And as uh, members of Rovers, I've got you can get them personalised with all the different players of your choice. Oh, which you know, which which, which players would you have then? Well, you, you obviously, you've got your, your Lenahans, your Dux, um, Danny Graham's, proper proper professional footballers. But obviously, I've chosen my favourite Elliot Bennett. Oh, of, of course. Well, Joe Rothwell's one of my favourite players. Are you, are you, any plans to get a mug, for him? He'll just have to wait his turn, I think. Yeah, but you know, if you want to get one of these, get your hands on one. You just have to go to the, uh, go to the terrace store, and then at BRFCS at checkout. Oh, well, that's that's brilliant then. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, it's fine. But remember, only Tony drinks out of the Elliot Bennett mug you would have to get yourselves one with, I don't know, Ben Brereton on it. Oh, okay then.
3: In an episode devoted to a bona fide Rovers legend, it's my distinct pleasure to welcome to the BRFCS podcast the daughter of Tony Parks. It's Natalie Parks Thompson. How are you, Natalie? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Uh, super. Looking forward to this chat, I have to say. We've got lots lots to cover. There's, there's so much to cover. I don't know. Where, we might have to bring you back for future episodes or do a DVD <laughs> box set or something. I don't know. But um, you, t- you tweeted something earlier today, which I think has resonated with with a lot of our followers on Twitter. Um, the last 12 months really cannot have been easy um, for well, for so many of us, but you in particular. But you did tweet earlier today that you finally got a date to see tony face to face so tell us about that how did the news come through and how much are you looking forward to it and how long have you got to wait
1: oh I'm, yeah i'm i'm thrilled um i'm giddy i'm so excited to see him um we've spent about two weeks apart um since i was born um until this year and i've not seen him face to face for kind of over six months
3: Oh my um
1: so it's been a long long time um, so they phoned me today and said that I can go over next Friday and see him. So happiness. I'm really excited. The, unfortunately, the, the home that he's in had a COVID outbreak uh, yeah. quite recently. Everyone was fine, but it's just meant it's delayed the visits. Yeah. So they couldn't open up on March the 8th like everywhere else could. So I've, I've had to wait. So I'm just really excited. Just hope I can hold it together enough to actually speak to him.
3: I'm sure you will. I'm sure when you get there, it must be such a nice release valve to know that you've got that coming at least. it's It's been fantastic to, to actually see him after so long. So bearing in mind the circumstances and the difficulty, how's it been for him? How's, um, how's he coped?
1: It's tough. It's been tough. It's been um, a hell of a year for everyone. Um, but for my dad in particular, it's been really hard because he he no longer understands the world that we live in in the right. same way that you and I do. So obviously when, when COVID hit, A year ago, he didn't understand what this big hoo-ha about this virus was and how he couldn't go to coffee shops and he couldn't go on a walk here with these people and all the kind of the social network that we got that was really helping him and maintaining memories um, just faded away and so did my dad. And we got a lot more challenging behaviour, which isn't my dad and it's you know anyone who's knows him from blackburn rovers would think "Challenge your behavior tony never <laughs> um the alzheimer's just strips it away it strips away the person that you knew and leaves this really bizarre character and covid seems to have brought out that person full fold yeah um I also found out at the time I was expecting my second child. So um, that was the reason he's ended up going into a residential setting um, because I, I just couldn't do it. It's, it's it's difficult it, it, as you
3: say under those circumstances to just try and keep on top of everything. Uh, I don't think anybody would uh, would would judge you harshly for that at all. Uh, it, it must be just an absolutely really really difficult situation. But I said the last 12 months has been absolutely nuts. It seems it seems odd to to the, well the last time I set foot in Ewood Park was um February last year. Uh, and it was when Tony was presented pre-match. And, and I don't know about you, but I was welling up to put it mildly. How how did he? How, how did the day go? How did he react to the adulation from the crowd?
1: So much better than I thought it was going to go. I got the phone call from Ken Beamish probably about eight, nine months before the event. And they were, you know, they were kind of telling me that my dad was going to get this award for the Hall of Fame. And and I just thought, I'm not going to get him there. I'm not going to get him there. He's not going to understand what's going on and it's going to be a nightmare. So fast forward the 8 9 months and we get there on the day and he loved every minute of it. He, it was a lot of hard work from a lot of close people who kind of were, were planting the seeds and helping him remember who he actually is. Yeah. Um with Alzheimer's it takes away that that memory of You know, he knows he played football and he knows he has things, you know, it's something to do with Blackburn Rovers, but he didn't quite remember his impact. But on that night, he did. You know, seeing all the faces that, you know, he recognised, seeing Kenny, it was just magical seeing them together. That had me in bits, trying to just seeing his eyes light up. Just such a shame that, Covid happened, and we couldn't build on that because yeah. my dad's back for a night. And to me, that's priceless.
3: What are the triggers then? That that sort of like bring him back. Is it meeting people? Or is it looking at photographs? Is it hearing things? What what's?
1: Yeah, sometimes it, it's meeting people. Um, photographs definitely. He um, can't always connect a name. You know, so if you say to him, because we're living in a virtual world, um, a lot of the time I've got to speak to him over the phone. So I might mention um, a player yeah. and a clue who I'm talking about. And then you show him a picture. And what he remembers is some shared memory that they've had, even places like Pleasanton. You know, you show him a picture of Pleasanton. And he can talk about um, attack, you know, he can remember putting the goalposts out with Kenny and tying the nets up. He can't remember the name of Pleasanton. He can't communicate that they were training. Yeah. But he can tell they put the goalposts up um, and, he, you know, tying the nets up and telling kids off for swinging on them when they walked away. <laughs> and, you know, so it, it seems to be like a, a visual image. Yeah a specific memory um and it cannot always be, be somebody's name it's it's such a bizarre how it works is just really weird but you know he'll, he'll remember he's done FaceTimes with Alan Shearer just earwigging on them conversations like I often do um you just think how how do you get that out of my dad? Like he'll just mention odd little things and it triggers a memory for my dad. Fantastic. Because they've got so much shared history. And I think yeah. that's it. I think you need for my dad to remember, you need the shared history. And you need it quite recently. Because sadly, he no longer remembers my mom. Um, he doesn't know he was ever married because my mom right. passed away 10 years ago. And to a person with Alzheimer's, it's too long.
3: That's an eternity, isn't it? not
1: yeah. recently enough, um, but he can remember some people because he's had shared situations with them more recently. It is magical when you see that, that memory trigger, you know, because you get that glimmer of the Tony Parks that you and yeah. all the listeners will know
3: just brings back um, all those memories of the days gone by I just was say. It's, it's such a cruel disease and there is a I think there's increasing focus on it which is great and we'll, we'll talk about what you're doing to 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 project that and and uh, raise funds for for alzheimer's research as, as well before we get to the end but yeah to say it strips people of the very essence of their soul to not to not be able to remember your mum, I mean that must be uh, that must be incredibly uh, incredibly difficult for you to uh, to reconcile that. But let me let me take you back if I may. Let's um, I'm going to reference some some photos on your Twitter feed. It looks like I'm stalking here. This I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that there might be an injunction coming in the post tomorrow. But uh, there, there's just just so many wonderful photos on your timeline and there's one which i'll put in the program notes which is uh, you sat on the lap of uh, of, of your mum and dad with a, a terrifically of the time haircut shall we say uh, man you're so his tone is having said that so i don't think uh, um how, how would you describe your childhood then what 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 are what are your abiding memories of growing up in a household where there was uh, where football was so important i would
1: actually say my childhood was really normal um and I do credit my mum and dad for that. You know, even even when Blackburn Rovers hit the big time of the Premier League, um, my mum and dad, they wanted me to have a normal upbringing. There were no private schools, nothing like that. You know, yeah. it, it's kind of... I had to wait for birthdays or Christmas like everyone else. Yeah. Um. I think I think growing up, I, I was really unaware of what my dad actually did. Um, obviously, I knew he was involved with football because I grew up around it. I mean, every every match day I spent at Ewood Park from a really, really early age. And because I couldn't sit still, I wasn't allowed to actually go and watch the game. Um, <laughs> so I spent it in the office, the ticket office with <laughs> uh, some really lovely ladies one of which I went on to become a bridesmaid for. Um, The highlight of the Saturday was eating prawn sandwiches in the boardroom before everyone else got in there.
4: Fabulous.
1: Um, But to me, that was just normal. I didn't appreciate what insight I got into life with a football player as a dad. Um, I mean, my memories are mainly from when he became a coach um, because, unfortunately, he broke his leg when I was about one. Um, so I don't really remember much about his playing days. I just, I kind of just, because of how Ewood Park used to be, Blackburn Rovers used to be the kind of really homely family club. I just used to go with my dad on a Sunday and I'd, I'd, I'd be jumping in and out of the baths um, because it was it was <laughs> great fun. These big shaped baths that they had. A swimming pool for you at
3: that age, would not it? Really? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I didn't understand that. Not every other child had the same opportunities as I did. I mean, the highlight of of my childhood was my birthday parties because my dad would bring the Blackburn Rovers minibus to take my friends to McDonald's, to bowling, whatever the thing was. And it was a clap (laughs) (laughs) towel thing with a big crunchy gear.
3: Like and, Rovers of the Community, yeah. one of those things, yeah, yeah. <laughs> held together yeah, by rust and goodwill.
1: Yeah, it wasn't obviously it wasn't a recent rage, but we loved it, and like, and just that was the highlight for me. It was not anything to do with the fact that you know my dad played football and had something to do with Blackburn Rovers. Yeah, it was all like the little things, and I think as as I got into kind of being a teenager. I found it harder to deal with who my dad was. I found it took away from who I was. You know, I'd walk down the corridor at the school and people would point and whisper, oh, that's Tony Parks' daughter. You know, and I found that people were invented this life that I had that were, you know, wasn't me. Apparently I'd got a son. And things like that were, were quite hard to deal with. I mean, I played hockey and netball, and I used to hate it when my dad used to come and watch because Nobody'd be watching the game. They'd all be milling round my dad. Yeah, and I used to get a bit kind of, "Oh, you've come to watch me?" I know I'm not very good, but come on,
3: credit where it's due. Yeah, it's. Uh, yeah,
1: I think I think from an outsider, it's it's a glamorous world, but it it isn't, and not definitely not when my dad started out. You know, it's probably gl- glamorous for Premiership players now, but back then, you know, it's kind of. I remember him bringing home all the football kits to wash, and my mum was thrilled. All <laughs> the kit pulling these bags out of the back car. We need them for tomorrow. And my mum gritting her teeth and dragging them off to the the washing machine. So it was very much a a, a get stuck in job. You know, there were no kit man or anything like that back then.
3: Well, I think even in the early days of the Premier League, even because um, I think in Alan Shearer's autobiography, when they were still training at Pleasanton, as you say, um, the, the players had to take their own their own kits home to wash. And she was said, yeah. "Compared to now, so it's just chalk and cheese; is yeah. not in it." But the difference between even then, in the early nineties, and and when your dad started playing in the early seventies, again, there's a there's a, a fantastic difference in. What the life of a footballer was about. I mean, you, you see so many yeah. pictures from the the fifties and the sixties of footballers living in semi-detached in in amongst ordinary people because there was the maximum wage. So that that that's what they earned. Yeah. I think. Yeah, gradually it's grown to being almost like rock star territory now in in the Premier League. It is it is a little bit different for for sure. But uh,
1: I was just going to say I grew up, you know, in a, a terrace house. Yeah, and then canvas black and got better. <laughs> Um, you know, we moved to <laughs> so did your house, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and it, it kind of, it, it went that way. But my dad was always really, really down to earth. What you saw is my dad, you know, no airs and graces. He just loved the game. He wouldn't have, I mean, I'm, I'm an only child. So, you know, it's it's kind of, it's a known thing that only children get spoiled. But, you know, I, I didn't want for anything. Yeah. But I didn't get spoiled either, and yeah. I credit my mum and dad for that. You know, they made me the person that I am today.
3: So, are, are you a football fan, or are you still a hockey and netball person? Then,
1: no, I, I am. I am a football fan. Um, I think you can't grow up around football and not have it drip, you know, drip-fed into you. Um, I have mixed feelings in later years about football, even though I know the fact that my dad never have changed what he did and um, I find it hard now kind of thinking that that career is why he he is what what yeah. like what he is now I do enjoy football um probably more so now into certain respects because I've got a bit more of appreciation about what my dad did and yeah. you know it, it, you get a bit more of an insight into life yeah
3: yeah i think as a child your, a your, your perspective is at a certain level isn't it and then as you grow up and you yeah i think yeah, all yeah. of us appreciate our parents in different ways as we get older and realize particularly you know, you've got you've got children and you you'll see through them the experiences and so many things will loop back around and you'll 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 hear the words of your parents i'm sure as you're shall we say yeah, minding yeah. your children
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I know it's coming.
3: Just on the subject of uh, the, the old dressing rooms at Ewood, as you talked about, again, another one of the uh, terrific photos which um, which we posted on BRSES and you gladly retweeted was um, one of my favourite photos from the Homes of Football collection, um, which are, there's some fabulous f- um, photos in the books and at the National Football Museum in Manchester. And it's uh, the old dressing rooms at Ewood in the Nuttall Street mm. stand. And Tony in, uh, in full dress suit ready for pre-matches is, is just, just straightening the shirt and just, just laying laying it out and just, just making sure that everything is just so. Mm. And if ever there's a photo that evokes or personifies the approach of an individual, I think I think that is it. It's a, it's a marvellous photo. Mm-hmm. And, and you said it's it's a case of love what you do and never work a day in your life.
1: Yeah.
3: Tr- yeah. T- Tony um, truly loved it. Yeah, yeah. He, um, he lived and breathed it. You
1: know, he's, he... It's what he did 24-7. It wasn't a job to my dad. He just absolutely loved it. And it, it makes me smell that photograph because it was the complete opposite at home. <laughs> <laughs> ever, in, the, <laughs> in the dressing room, you know, everything had its place. You know, yeah. he, he was the keeper of the keys for Pleasanton. Um, so if he had, had, ever had a day off, which he very rarely did, um, unless he had to take me somewhere, um, nobody could get in training because he was the only ones with the keys, but at home he was completely opposite.
3: <laughs> it's funny how that happens, isn't it? So many times where people's yeah. people's professions yeah. that you wouldn't, you would never guess it from, from sort of their home life. It's no, almost like, well, I spend so no. much time being that person at work that when I'm at home, I, I've just got to be something to balance it out. Yeah. I don't know, it's the, yeah. the, the yin and the yang. Yeah, sort but of he, 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 he
1: did, he absolutely, you know, he loved it. When it was a relegation battle, you know, he he adored kind of the years with Kenny and Alan Shearer. But he's a proper football man. And if you ask him before he could, think, you know, when he remembered things, he actually preferred the gritty football. Yeah. You know, he loved winning the Premiership, you know, the 80s for him, you know, the kind of the second division stuff, the old stadium, you know, that was where he felt at home. And, you know, that's where a lot of his memories lie today, you know, from photos of that era. You know, even though kind of the the Kenny Ray-Madad partnership, you know, they sparked off each other. It was something special, which is why they won the Premier League. But for my dad, you know, he would have been happy just plodding along in the second division, yeah. you know, because he he did it for the football
3: yeah, it and wasn't for the it for glamour. It was for
1: the, yeah, because he knew he was lucky.
3: Yeah.
1: You know, that every kid growing up wants to be a footballer and he actually got to do that. And for a long time, every day he knew he was lucky until he got diagnosed with Alzheimer's.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, that leads leads us on to, a, to another theme, I guess, of yeah. this, con- this conversation. Um, increasingly... It's, it's becoming more prevalent in the game. I think there, there are more cases. There's almost like one every week we had. In the last few weeks, we had Dave yeah. Watson and Gordon McQueen um, sort of being diagnosed. And we're learning more and more about it. And I think yeah, you've also got in American football as well all the, all the concussion cases there. I think there's there's a lot more medically that we need to learn. But you you started to to get involved in um, well the, the hashtag on Twitter is is dementia in football, and it seems to be a campaign yeah. that's trying to build awareness in the first instance, I guess, and then mm-hmm. action. What, what what's all that aiming to achieve, Natalie? What what's the what's the purpose of the campaign?
1: Change is the the big thing because a lot of people do you know do say well anyone can get dementia and that's true yeah. anyone can get dementia you don't have to be a footballer but in football you know you're three to five times more likely to get the diagnosis than any other profession and it's also a profession that you can actually make some changes to reduce those odds and i think that's why i've got involved yeah is that it is an area where changes can be made to help future generations, it's too late for my dad. My dad isn't the one suffering, you know, because he, he doesn't know. You know, he, he might know he's got a few difficulties, but he doesn't know the extent of how much he's, he's changed. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm suffering. You know, every day I wake up and, it, you know, it, I lose a bit more of him every day. Yeah. Um, you know, I have the financial worry, the emotional strain it's families are the ones who suffer. Yeah. And if you can make a change somewhere in the game to stop family after family having to feel like I feel every day, then it's worth joining in with the campaign. You know, it's going to be a national crisis, not just within football, but just within Britain society, because of the yeah. amount of people, you know, that it's coming through with. But when you have to live with somebody who you're close to and you see them from being, you know, the person you looked up to as a child and every day a little bit more goes and a little bit more goes, you'll do anything to help. I can't help my dad now.
3: Yeah.
1: You know, I can't do anything. It's all out of my control. From the moment you get that diagnosis, you've lost that person. Um, But what I can control is trying to build awareness, trying to get the message out that dementia can happen to anyone, but there's also things that can be done to reduce those chances. Right. You know, I'm a teacher by trade, and I've seen the national curriculum where heading the ball is part of the national curriculum. Yeah. And it changes like that that I want to see happen. Heading the ball will never be gone from the game because it would, I don't think football would be the same without it. But there are instances where you don't have to head the ball. Yeah. And you it's can a the child, risk. You, don't, you know, when I when I uh, was teaching and fell pregnant, I, I was given a risk assessment so I could still do my job, but to reduce the risk to myself and yeah. my unborn child.
3: Yeah,
1: it's the same kind of thing. My dad went into a job. Which he didn't know the risks, other than the fact that he might, you know, have a dodgy knee or a dodgy hip or break yeah. his leg. The head wasn't even thought about. You know, it's, it's getting that risk assessment so that future generations go into the career with the same passion, the same enthusiasm, but with their eyes wide open yeah. that this is what will happen at the end. And hopefully, we can get a package of support out there, you know, to help people who are suffering right now with it. To what extent are the PFA involved? It's been a bit of a long road with the PFA. I think they've you know done a lot of things behind the scenes that the public were very unaware about. Yeah, um, they've also buried their head in the sand for a long time. Mm. They've helped families, you know as indivi- on individual cases because I know I've approached them and they've you know they've supported myself and my dad. Um, but what they're doing now is kind of saying, yes, this is a problem. There is a lot of footballers out there. There's a lot more that we don't know about. Let's see what we can do. So they've got a a kind of a committee, a working party now that has the fantastic Dawn Astle on on board. And they're trying to put money into research and trying to get other ways of supporting families. So I'm really, really feeling positive that actually, you know, change can happen. It doesn't happen overnight you know, a lot of money needs to be spent, but it doesn't always have to be spent by giving it to an individual family. Yeah. You know, money can be put into... Um,
3: Different initiatives.
1: ...community. You yeah. know, my dad loves Remember Rovers, the Black and Rovers Community Trust do with um, Age Concern or one of the, you know, one yeah, of the yeah. other charities. My dad loves sporting memories that have been amazing, you know, put some funding into the into those kind of groups. Because they make a real difference with people's lives, and I can spout on about it for ages. Also, now, but it's it's fantastic
3: that, that you, you're doing so much. I mean, it's to your to your eternal credit. I think when when people are faced with adversity in the way that you've described, you know, you, you can be drown, you can easily drown in it. Or you can sort of say, well, I'll I'll try and make as big a positive as you can. Obviously, it's not going to, as you said, it's not going to bring Tony back, but educating people, changing the way that kids play football, uh, can Mm. reduce the instances in in future generations. And there's a a lot of medical research going on, I'm sure, and we we will learn a lot more as we always do in these instances over time. But right Mm -hmm. now, in the here and now, what can you do? And one of the things that you're doing, as you've just told me, is You're doing a walk, uh, Natalie's memory walk, and the the beneficiary is the Alzheimer's Society. So t- tell us what you're mm-hmm. doing, and then more personally, perhaps tell us how we can help you by giving some money.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's. I just feel with from the day my dad got diagnosed, I need to do things. I need to do something to help because I I was very naive as to what it what it was what it meant to get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, And how bad it actually is. I mean, I lost my mum 10 years ago to terminal cancer and thought that was evil. But I had my mum with me till the very end. It's a cruel disease, but she was there. Mm. Whereas dad and glimmers of my dad vanished very, very quickly uh, with Alzheimer's. So, you know, when I got the diagnosis, it was like, I need to start doing things so like we've just spoke about, joining in with the campaign. I then fell pregnant, so I couldn't do much. I was too big and fat. So <laughs> it was like, right now, you know, I've had my baby. I'm, uh, I'm ready to go. So yep. let's start with the, the memory walk. And the reason I picked the Alzheimer's Society goes back to uh, our previous conversation, that anyone can get dementia, uh, anyone can get Alzheimer's. Uh, it's not just footballers. And the support's not there. Whoever rings up after a diagnosis is nothing, there's no support there. Um and even more so now because of COVID. Yeah. Um, of course. All the charity events have been cancelled. Yeah,
3: donations are dropped.
1: So I point. decided, yeah, yeah, so let's do this memory walk. It will get me get me going. Um so I'm doing it in memory of my dad and Fantastic. also for a lot of other people that I know who have suffered with this awful disease. Um, I'm also doing it for two very good friends of mine, uh, Mags Elliott, who is the wife of Stephen Elliott, ex-Preston North End, and Danny Robson, whose dad is Jimmy Robson, ex-Burnley. They are amazing ladies who deal with so much on a daily basis. They spur me on in life (laughs) through (laughs) really bad times. So if I can raise a little bit of money, to get some support out there for the families, you know, let's do this. I'm gonna put on some really bad, dodgy music and just
3: walk. So, how far are you aiming to uh, to go?
1: I'm gonna play it by ear. I'm aiming for about ten miles. Yeah, but I'm gonna see on the day if I can push it a little bit further. Yeah, um, and just see because I, I, I breastfeed my daughter, so I've got to have her with me. <laughs> so it's uh, it's kind of juggling motherfuckers well, multiple and- challenge. Yeah, yeah. Multitasking. <laughs> I just, I just feel I need to do do something, and I'm not fit enough right now to kind of take on a mega challenge. But hopefully, in the future, that may that may come. Fantastic. Um, feel it's something I need to do. So I do have a just giving page. So if anyone does fancy um, I was just donating, yeah, it would be very much appreciated. I mean, I've I've, I've smashed my targets uh amazingly when they ask you when you join up for these things they ask you how much it's like to make so i, I put 300 pound thinking i'm sure with friends and family i could cobble yeah. that together and yeah it's um it it's done better than that so i'm so grateful and it's lovely that i've had lots of donations for people who i've never met before they're yeah. doing it just for my dad and um, so that means a lot because knowing how much it means to other people yeah actually helps you know
3: it, it helps you get through your back spurs you on to
1: the next next level yeah, so good yeah it really does okay well we'll,
3: um, we'll certainly put the link in the program notes as you say you've got a, a just giving page um, basically I think the easiest way to find it is if you uh, if you google Natalie Parks Thompson or Natalie's Memory Walk 2021 and just giving then it will it will take you to that page, but we'll put uh, we'll put a direct link in the program notes, and we'll we'll certainly retweet it on Twitter as well. So it's going to a tremendous cause, and I'm sure all Rovers fans would want to uh, would want to provide that support. So if you're able to spare a few pennies in these times, that would be uh, appreciated by Natalie, I'm sure. Natalie, does the page stay open after you've done the walk?
1: As far as I know, it does um, for for a certain length of time. Right. Um, so I, I know I've done it for other people in the past, kind of oh, such a body's just done that, yeah, and donated afterwards, so it does it does stay open for a little while afterwards. Like the,
3: if anybody's listening to this at some point in the future and um and and the page is no longer there, but just donate to Alzheimer's society because that's the the beneficiary of the good cause mm. so um every every pound that contributes to research and support for all the rest of it will be it will be gratefully received i'm sure natalie thank you so much for your time uh, i really appreciate it uh, and if it's not abundantly clear and i'm sure it already is tony is truly a rovers legend and he's, he's loved appreciated adored dare i say by um by thousands and thousands of rovers supporters and my, my rover supporting era overlaps his playing career and his management career almost like to the day i think um I think he signed for Rovers in 1970 and I'd not long been supporting the side by then. So I've certainly seen him play, coach, score goals and all the rest of it. And I thought I'd just end on a on a lovely little quote from um, Mike Jackman's official Blackburn Rovers encyclopedia and the, the entry for Tony, which I think sums him up quite nicely, is Always an underrated player. He rarely caught the eye, but was always there to link up play between defence and attack. An inspirational character on the field, he worked tirelessly to cover the gaps in the middle of the park, yet still found time and energy to burst forward to score important goals. It goes on, of course, but I just thought that that summed Tony up, not just in his playing career, but always an inspirational character, absolutely. Tireless, full of energy, and true Blackburn Rovers through and through. So when you do get to see him, pass on all our best wishes, of course all our best wishes go to you and um our admiration and respect for doing a massive walk on friday thank you once again for joining us
1: oh you're welcome thanks very much
3: well wasn't that wonderful hearing from natalie about what life was like growing up with the uh, father who was so involved in football and so involved in Blackburn Rovers. Thanks again to Natalie for giving up her time, it really is appreciated. And some thanks in this episode also, of course to my co-contributor Bill Arthur, once again coming up trumps, delivering the goods all the way from Canada. Thanks also to our good friend only one J Henry for letting us use his version of by gum will make it a day. It really is magnificent. Do look him up on Twitter and do listen to our previous podcast episode for more of Joshi's work. Thanks to the Symmetry Band for our theme music. Thanks to our sponsors the Terrace and thanks to you for listening. We'll be back soon. See you then. <laughs>
1: podcast. It's definitely the best footballing podcast there is, no question. Right, can I have my car keys back now?
3: This is the BRFCS
5: podcast.
0: Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.